Hello, my name is Michelle Yanachan, the Wondering Book Collector, and this is my podcast, Conversations with Writers Exploring What's Informed Their Books Around Themes of Movement, Memory, Sense of Place, Borders, Identity, Belonging, and Home. I'm joined by the writer and journalist Janine Giovanni, whose books have been translated into 30 languages and include The Morning They Came For Us, which are dispatches from Syria in the tumultuous year of 2012, and the memoir Ghosts by Daylight, which moves between Paris, Bosnia, Abidjan, Baghdad, and more. And out this month is The Vanishing, looking at the future of Christian communities in the Middle East, fragile as that may be. Janine, welcome. Hello, Michelle Yana. Good morning from New York. <laughs> Good morning to you. Um, your new book has a heartbreaking title, The Vanishing, and even more heartbreaking stories within it. Simply put, it's about people who are forced to leave their homes. I wanted to first, though, turn the lens on you, Janine, and ask you, where's home for you? It's a good question. Um, it's a very difficult question for me. I was born in America to Italian parents. My father had uh, emigrated from Italy in the late 1920s um, to escape fascism. Um, his father was a small town politician in a very small town in, in southern Italy at the time of the fascist takeover. So they were they were immigrants um, and they came to America at a time when there was much discrimination against Italian Americans, Italian immigrants. Um, there were lynchings in New Orleans. My grandfather had to walk in the street. Um, they wouldn't let Italians walk, walk on the sidewalk. Um, so it was a very different time. Um, when I was 19, I, I myself made the migration to, to London, which became my home for the next, I'd say, 18 years. Um, and basically, it, it was my adulthood, my, my closest friends, my coming of age, and, and my working life. Um, so in many ways, my humor, my intellect, my, my love of banter all comes from my the English side of my, mm -hmm. my being. <laughs> and then finally, um, I, I moved to Paris in 2004 because I fell in love and married a Frenchman and had a French child. And, um, and but most of my work, as you know, was always in the Middle East, the Balkans or Africa. And then four years ago, I, my son and I moved to New York City where he got a scholarship to be to go to a private boys school and I began a job at Yale University. So that's a very long way of saying I have no idea where home is. And, and it's something I think writers constantly grapple with, with their identity, the question of home, the question of exile from Ulysses and his yearning to get home to Edward Said, the great Palestinian intellectual and his kind of inherent yearning for a place that that no longer exists the the villages of palestine that 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 his 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 ancestors were expelled from well i i noticed in your acknowledgments in the vanishing that you write um that your son draws you home from where it is that you're wondering and i wondered if his moving um also means that the notion or the place you call home moves with him Yes, very much so. Um, he is my grounding, um, but he's 17 and next year he's going to university. And um, 
being a, a good mother, I know that that is the most important thing for him. And, you know, in America, kids go away. They really do go away. Um, and he will stay in America. And I most likely will go back to Europe. Um, I'm not sure yet, but that means we'll be on different continents. And um, I think this is the modern dilemma of many, many people, especially post-pandemic. You know, we don't know we don't know where we are. And I think the notion of home, to get back to that, is um, it is where family is. In my case, I'm, I'm the youngest of an enormous family, and, and most of them have died. Um, so I'm kind of the last, um, myself and my mother, who's very, very, very old. Um, so, so family, so America, especially post-Trump, doesn't hold much, um, much for me here. And, and I find it a very wounded country as well. Um, COVID, Trump, um, those years had a huge effect on it. So I'm really still looking for my home. But um, having said that, wherever I was in the world, um, and I mean literally like a sleeping bag in Afghanistan or a corner of a, a, a rooftop in Iraq where I was sleeping, I've always had this very strange little ability <laughs> to kind of make it my nest and make it cozy. Um, and I think it's because for so many years, I lived out of literally like out of a backpack when I was traveling. But there were tiny things that I would bring with me because I knew that my morale would be plummeted by, um, you know, by the events I was witnessing. So I, I'm, I'm thinking back to a time in 2001 after the fall of, of the Taliban. And I literally like had this corner of an abandoned schoolhouse where I was sleeping or an abandoned municipal building or something. And I, I had my sleeping bag rolled out. I had my little flashlight next to me. I had a tiny bottle of lavender oil, which um, I always use to help me sleep or for you know antibiotic. Um, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful little thing to have. And my book, and I had everything kind of neatly arranged. Like it was my corner and it was my home in the middle of a very chaotic moment. So <laughs> I've always had this weird thing about nesting. Mm, I like that. I, I, you bring up the pandemic, Janine. It's interesting. I wonder if, um, you know, those of us with such privileged passports, now that we've endured separation and it's affected our movement so much, I, I wonder if there's more empathy globally for dislocation and forced exile. It's interesting. Uh, last night, I had to go to the public theater in New York because I'm advising on a play called The Visitor, which is about a Syrian immigrant to America who is deported, who is here illegally. And it's very hard to explain to people who see migrants or refugees as masses. You know, 10 million people have left um, this area or migrants from Ethiopia or Somalia are crossing the Mediterranean. But the way that I look at them, because I've spent so many years working with refugees um, and, and worked for the UN Refugee Agency at one point, is each one is an individual with a story and a history. Every single person, and that includes like homeless people that you see on the street, like every single one of them, um, instead of walking by, I think they were born of a mother. They probably have siblings somewhere they might have, when they were children, had a dog or a cat that they loved. They learned how to read or not. They, um, they, each of them has a unique history. So, you know, getting back to the book um, I'm right, I've just written, The Vanishing, 
Um, this is a book about the expulsion of ancient people, in this case, Christians, from four areas that I examined, Iraq, Syria, Egypt, and the Gaza Strip. And these people are ancient, ancient Christians. They're Assyrians, they're Chaldeans, they're Copts, um, they're Orthodox, they're, they're Latin Catholics, and they're being threatened um, in their ancestral homeland. Um, so I try to focus on them as individuals. Um, why are the numbers of Iraqi Christians who at one point had been nearly half a million and now are closer to 150,000, why are they dwindling? And, and this is the land of, of Jesus Christ. Um, you know, we're getting up to Christmas and for Christians around the world, Christmas day is a celebration of the birthplace of Christ, which was in the Middle East in Bethlehem. Um, and yet these people are now being expelled um, either by radical forces, by geopolitics, by radical and drastic climate change, or by migration because they're forced to leave because economically they can't survive in those lands anymore. And you write about these individuals, these absolute, the, the tales of these unique individual lives um, so evocatively in your book. I wonder when you do, and they, 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 so many have this very strong sense of home, of belonging. I wonder, is that puzzling given your circumstances? Is it enviable? Do they have something that, that you don't, that you want? Yes, it's so interesting you say that because Gaza, the Gaza Strip is probably one of the most miserable places on earth. Um, it's seven miles by 14 miles. People, there's 2 million people there. They're trapped inside, meaning they're unable to leave. There's been a blockade, um, a siege since 2007. Periodically, they endure horrific bombing. Uh, in May, the Israeli, um, the Israeli uh, forces bombed them to hell for 11 days, killing over 200 people, 67 of them children. Um, so their lives, like this is just to say, their lives are pretty awful. Um, the electricity is only on a couple hours a day. There's no fresh water. It's unbearably hot and then unbearably cold. They live in refugee camps. So all of this. But when I am there, I have to tell you something. I feel this tremendous envy at their family life because the most important thing to them is family. Um, whether it's living, you know, with their grandparents, their aunts, their uncles, their cousins, there's no one is alone. Um, here in New York, I meet so many people that tell me, you know, my parents died. I don't have any brothers and sisters. My friends are my family, but I don't have anyone. Um, I meet so many single people. I meet so many people that are, you know, desperately lonely. And they're <laughs> the one thing you can never be, you, you have many other existential and physical constraints, but you're never lonely because you have aunts and uncles and cousins and, and third cousins and neighbors and, and everyone is living in such close proximity that it's like a, a real community. That's the first thing. And the second thing is that they're amongst the most educated people in the Middle East, because despite everything, they um, they educate their children from a very early age, so that's their weapon. You know, they say you can take our, you can you know you can occupy us, you can humiliate us, but you cannot take our minds. And um, it's it's quite enviable to see people who are that resilient 
that courageous, that strong, and that encircled by, by family love. I'm thinking right now to the waiter that you described. I think he was in London, but he came from Gaza and he, his mother was on her deathbed. Her request was for him to be there. He couldn't be there because, you know, it's not as fluid for him to move around. And, you know, family can bring pain too. this, this kind of sense of belonging. Whereas there is also a resilience with having no bricks and mortar home because you can't lose a home if you don't have one. I, I wonder if um, that's our survival yeah. mechanism, a kind of defensive mechanism is, um, that, that some of the lonely people you describe in New York have. Well, I mean, there are many, many young Gazans and, and people from all over the world who, for instance, I'm thinking of this one young academic I just spoke to, and he left Gaza to go to Turkey to finish his PhD. And there are, there are tens of thousands of young Gazans in Istanbul at the moment. But he said to me, you know, I, I have to do this because I can't function in Gaza anymore. I can't get, I can't do what I want to do. I can't be free, but I miss it every day. And he said, I loved my refugee camp. He said, I grew up in a refugee camp, but I loved it. It made me who I am. So I think, you know, we all have to look at our collective histories and, you know, sometimes I look at mine and I think, okay, I, I did not do the traditional thing. I, you know, I'm not married and living in Brooklyn with a husband and three kids. And then when I'm 60 or 70, I'll have five grandchildren and I'll have extended people. My life's been very, very different. Um, and it's been, you know, a life of your podcast is wandering, right? Well, my life has been a wandering life. And um, and yet it's it's been painful and it's been lonely, of course, but it's also been extraordinarily rich. Um, and I'm blessed to have one child. I only have one child, but that one child, I've been able to um, devote um, enormous amounts of myself to, which I don't think I would have been able to do if I had two or three and, and continued my writing. And, um, you know, the work I've done over the years is very important to me because it's, um, it's living documents of people who might not be on this earth in a hundred years. And by that, I mean the Christians I'm writing about, the Christians of the Middle East. Um, they, you know, social scientists really do believe that in a hundred years time, there will not be Iraqi Christians anymore. Now this is, you know, the land of the prophets. This is where St. Thomas walked. This is where Jonah and the whale um, came. This is, you know, all of the biblical stories. So to think that these people will be erased from that part of the world, is, is my work, you know, to document them, who they are, how they are living, um, so that no one can ever say this didn't happen, they weren't here. And, and given that, you know, sometimes a whole family might move like, uh, from Gaza to Toronto or London, or, or what they're missing is, is it easy to grapple with this idea of they're missing their birthplace, they're missing their burial sites, their you know, what is it, what does roots actually mean or tradition yeah. land? Like, what is it that they're missing? Perhaps if they're surrounded by their immediate kin, is it their third cousin by marriage? I wonder what you're hearing in your reporting that they actually do, do miss about their homeland. Well, I focused more on um, the people there still in this book, The Vanishing, but I've certainly worked with many, many, many refugees who were displaced. Um, and even from my own family, I can tell you that, you know, when my parent, my father was alive and all of my siblings were together and alive, um, 
our celebrations were, it could have been in a town in Southern Italy, you know, like the food that my family, my, my father grew up um, once he emigrated to America in basically a little Italian neighborhood where everyone spoke Italian, where they only ate Italian food, where they celebrated the feast days and the saint days and where everyone knew each other. And they all came from the same part of Italy. And my mother's actually, he and my mother met when they were 16 and their families were from the same province in Italy um, and, and very different kind of socioeconomic backgrounds, but very, um, you know, the same world. So they, they knew each other from way back. Um, I married a Frenchman, which wasn't so dissimilar to my own roots because his family were Catholics um, and French and Italian Catholics are quite similar. And, you know, he, he came from a family that had strong family ties as well. Um, but now I'm living, you know, with my son in, in New York, lonely New York, where um, people are transient and where many people live alone and where the sense of family has been surpassed by money and greed and wealth and um, where money is much more important than than sitting down for a dinner every night at the table. And so, you know, I think wherever you are, you have to keep the tradition of your ancestors. Um, so, you know, I have taught my son that, you know, Christmas Eve, for instance, is an Italian feast where you have seven fishes. And I said to him, you know, long after I'm gone, will you do that with your children? And he said, absolutely. Um, so there's things, you know, despite the modernity of the world, despite cybocurrency, despite Twitter and Instagram and TikTok, the things that remain. And these are the things that we pass to our children, if we have children, if not to our friends, to the people around us, our community. Um, and, you know, just getting back to your original point about the Christians that leave and go to Toronto or wherever they go, um, I think there is a constant yearning and longing and nostalgia. I think that is just part of the bargain that you, you, you can't get a job in Iraq or Syria or Egypt or Gaza. Okay, so you go to Toronto, you go to Singapore, you go to Sweden, you go to the UK, but for the rest of your life, you will live with this constant sense of you are not in the place where you were born. And many, many years ago, I had a friend from Zimbabwe and he told me something. I, I met him for lunch in New York City, and this is you know maybe 30 years ago. And he had just walked, I'm not kidding, the length of New York from Battery Park at the Southern Point all the way up to the Bronx. Um, he had, and when he met me, he had just completed that walk. And I said, why did you do that? And he said, because in Africa, we walk. You know, and, and years later, when I lived in Africa, I knew that when you look out your window at 5.30 in the morning, everyone's on the road walking, you know, walking to work, walking to the cities. But he told me, my friend Shimmer, who is a um, famous Zimbabwean writer, um, he said, you can always tell people who are far from the place of their birth when you look into their eyes. And I never forgot that because, you know, I think that we roam the world and we're looking for a place, especially in this kind of post-COVID chaotic, desperate, frightening world. And we're all, you know, trying to find or recreate the, the place where we can't we come from. But in many of our cases, we can't go back to the places we come from. You can't go home again. You can't go back to Syria. 
In my case, you can't go back to New Jersey. You can't go back to London or Singapore or whatever. If you've kind of grown out of it or you've, for reasons that are beyond you, you just can't go. There's war, there's geopolitics, whatever. But then you live forever inside of you with a longing, a yearning, a very, very deep and profound nostalgia. So that's the kind of trade-off. Yes. I'm thinking about the painting that you describe at the start of The Vanishing um, on the wall. Is it a painting of, of, I think, the sailor, and he's talking to quite kind of um, provincial villages. And you wrote about how he'd gone to stretch his imagination and explore. And perhaps you said in it was against the natural order of things. And maybe he should not have done that. I, I was really taken by that line, Janine. I wondered if that's what you sometimes think to yourself, given you described your life to me as, you know, not normal in a way. Yes. No, I mean, I love that painting. It's a painting of a, um, he's clearly a sailor that has roamed the world. It's probably the 1700s in a very provincial village in France. And he's sitting on a bench in a kitchen regaling the villagers with stories of his travels and their faces, you know, their mouths are open because they've never left the village. And I wrote that when I was living in a village of my ex-husband's ancestors where they've lived for 400 years um, in the same house and the same villagers. And it was the height of COVID and there was about 14 of us in the village. Um, So those people, again, I had a kind of deep envy because they knew who they were and they knew where they came from. And they might not have seen the wonders of the world that I have, or they might not have experienced the incredible um, bliss or euphoria that I have, or on the other hand, seen like such wretched misery and, and violence, but they knew who they were and they knew where they were and they were deeply rooted to the earth. So getting back to my book, The Vanishing, these Christian people are rooted to their land. So to expel them from it, not only expels them as individuals, it expels an entire um, notion of Christians in the Middle East. And and, And then we are in danger of a homogenized Middle East, which is something that no one wants. We we need to have these ethnic minorities, um, these religious minorities, because they make these countries what they are. And also when they head to their new land, they, they want or need to assimilate, right? So, so there's also this blending in, which we often see as something quite positive because you know, you're know you settling in and, and everyone's accepting you, but of course that creates, creates a homogenization. I mean, it's human nature to want to Assimilate. But I mean, on the other hand, you know, I think of all the refugee camps I've been in most recently, um, the Syrian refugee camps on the borders of Lebanon and and, and Turkey and um, Jordan. And, you know, these are Syrian people. Now the war has been going on for more than 10 years. Um, so children have been born in these camps and yet their parents, it's essential that their parents um, impress on them their identity. You are Syrian. You, know, you are a Syrian. Um, don't forget that. But yet they they've never seen Syria and they might never in their lifetime because they they won't be able to go back. So, you know, these people are not assimilated into the Lebanese or the Jordanian or the Turkish um, population because they are 
they are aside, they're refugees, they are the other. Um, and, and I think this is a whole other issue as we go forward in time and climate change gets worse and we're gonna have more and more migration and shifting populations. Um, in 2008, I did a big study for the UN about um, Asia, mostly Indo Indonesia, people leaving their villages and their farmlands because of drought or poverty and going to the big cities. So there, there was these big shifts in Asia of rural populations moving to cities. Um, and we're going to see that more and more and more in the future as climate change um, becomes more prevalent, even more prevalent. So these are all things we, you know, we have to keep in mind when we look at vanishing people, um, villages that will be no more, traditions that will be kind of muted as time goes on, and the, the huge importance of keeping all these things alive. And your life too, I guess, Janine, will also be impacted. Um, by these factors. I, I wonder when travel becomes more, more fluid and borders become more porous again, where are the stories that you want to tell and cover? Yeah, I'm very, very worried about what's happening in Europe again. Um, Bosnia, which is a country that's hugely, hugely important to me, um, really, you know, the war in Bosnia made me who I am, um, is, is in very bad shape. Some people feel like it might be on the verge of if not armed conflict, certainly um, they are disintegrating into some terrible ethno-national um, trouble there. Um, and I'm writing quite a bit about that. So I'm worried about Bosnia. I'm worried about Ukraine. I'm worried about Russia's influence. I'm worried about China-Taiwan. I'm worried about the situation of the Uyghurs in China. I'm worried about the Rohingyas. Um, I'm worried about... Um, Africa and climate change and migration, the war in Ethiopia, which continues. Um, I'm worried about the rise of terrorism in the Middle East, the resurgence of ISIS, not to mention ongoing problems in Iraq and the Taliban in Afghanistan. So <laughs> there's a whole world. I mean, I will never be unemployed. <laughs> I mean, you're prepared. I know we all know to risk your life for the story. Um, is everywhere worth the risk? I don't know if I'm prepared to risk my life for a story. Absolutely not. Um, because, you know, the most important journalist or writer is the one who gets out alive. But I am, what I am prepared to do is to document um, events, especially human rights violations, so that people can never say this didn't happen. That's my aim, not a story, absolutely not a story. Um, it's more long lasting documentation of war crimes or of um, capturing the voices of people who don't have voices and might not have them in years to come. And that's my kind of my mission in life. That's that's what I do. That is an important differentiation. I just I wanted to ask you in Ghosts by Daylight, which is your memoir you wrote about 10 years ago. Um, there's an ex who's proposing a life together. And, and you wrote that the notion, the expression of confinement meant death to me, the end of freedom. I wonder if you, if you feel like you will always wonder, Jenny, <laughs> what is it about the call, that call of the, of the open road that you hear? Yeah. Funny, um, you know, people are posting on Twitter their favorite music and someone posted a, a grunge song from the 1990s called I Am The Highway by... Um, 
Chris Cornell, who was like a kind of, you know, Nirvana type grunge musician. He wasn't in Nirvana, but I, I was listening to it the other day. And what it's about is about people that cannot be confined. And, um, you know, these past four years in New York, I won't say I've been confined, but I've had like a real job where I, I have to be at Yale on, you know, certain days of the week. And it's not a question of not showing up. And I'm living with my son. His dad is in Paris. So I can't just take off and go without, you know, preparation. And, uh, you know, he is at school, so he needs routine and, 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 um, and, and boundaries. And so, you know, I have been more or less not confined, but um, probably the most um, traditional that I've ever been in my life. And I was thinking about a job that someone was talking to me about, but it means being in an, in, if not an office, being in situ all the time. And I thought, gosh, no, I, I can't do that. And, you know, I, um, when I was very young and I graduated from university, all my friends went to work on Wall Street and they made tons of money. But I knew even then that I could not live a life where you got two weeks vacation and where you spent every day looking out if you even had a tiny window or in an office. It just wasn't going to be me. Um, I needed, even then, I knew I needed an airplane ticket a backpack, somewhere I've never been before, the the thrill of meeting people who speak a language I don't, um, and trying to understand them, and trying to go to a new place and learn what it was about. And I think that, you know, that will keep me young and alive for many, many years. So, um, no, I think, you know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And um, I don't think I'm going to be one of these people <laughs> who sort of settles into a quiet life. It's it's just not me. Um, I mean, I do love to be in nature. I love to go for walks in the forest. I love, you know, my time relaxing on a beach somewhere beautiful. But um, ultimately, you know, I'm happiest when I'm going somewhere with a notebook and a pen and the notion in my head that I'm going to talk to people and learn something new and be curious and, and um, come away with knowledge that I didn't have before. It's definitely not a passing phase, Janine. <laughs> it <laughs> like, sounds like you've got that for life. Um, it's been such a pleasure you joining me on The Wandering Book Collector today. Janine, thank you so much for your time. No, thank you. It's been a real pleasure to talk. Uh, thanks, everyone. And um, take a look at the book, The Vanishing. <laughs> thanks. The Wandering Book Collector would like to thank the supporters of this podcast, Abercrombie & Kent, Toomey and Ultimate Library. Thank you for listening.